Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Brian Van Tyne, Professor of Medicine in Medical Oncology and Professor of Pediatrics at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis in the US of A, WashU as it's affectionately known. He's also the current director of the Developmental Therapeutics Phase 1 program. In 1995, Brian graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry from the University of Arizona, and then attended the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he graduated with his medical degree, and later a PhD. Brian continued his education at the Barnes Jewish Hospital at WashU, first as an intern in internal medicine, followed by his residency, and then an oncology fellowship. Since 1990, Brian has received numerous awards and honors, including the first place poster from the Washington University Breast Cancer Symposium. He's also no stranger to the media, having had a number of articles published in the news, along with nearly 150 articles published in medical journals. Brian's a prolific author, and he additionally has 12 book chapters to his name. Brian's clinical interest is soft tissue and bone sarcomas, which we'll be discussing a bit later. And he researches human in mouse sarcoma models, amino acid deprivation therapies, and metabolic deficiencies in sarcoma. My first exposure to sarcoma was during an elective uh, that I did uh, down in Florida with a chap named uh, Bill Enneking in, in orthopedic oncology many moons ago. He was a very impressive surgeon. And I, I certainly learned a lot in the department. I was delighted to learn that Brian appreciates good food, eating at top restaurants and sampling wines. He is indeed a man after my own heart. He also attends antique auctions. So I'm keen to ask him about that. In fact, there's lots to discuss. So let's crack on. Professor Brian Van Tyne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What an embarrassing introduction. It's a delight to have a kindred spirit on and... You know, I lived and worked in the United States for many years. I know WashU, I know the University of Arizona. And um, yeah, there's, I think we could, we could probably talk for ages. So let's dig in. Personal stuff first. Favorite cuisine, most desired wine, and one really cool item that you found online. Well, so let's start with favorite cuisine, which would be French. I have an affinity for foie gras. The... History behind my favorite wine actually comes from the opportunity to work in Paris multiple summers where I had to take a wine to the woman I was working for back in 1992. And so I went into a wine store and was given two $35 bottles of insignia for which I took those to France. I wish insignia still cost $35 today, but it's become my hallmark wine. How much is a bottle of insignia nowadays? About $400. Oh, okay. <laughs> a snip. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the number three wine and made in the United States every year. But it was funny that of all wines, that the, the, the man at the wine store handed somebody who knew nothing at the age of 21, two bottles of insignia, $35. And then, you know, I have bought some very curious watches over time because uh, I, I like antique watches. And so sometimes I pick those up offline. And so I have a, a rather neat a bell watch that's also a pin as opposed to a wristwatch. So let's dig into the medical stuff. What took you uh, into medicine and specifically oncology? 
so it's been a long journey. I always, you know, had an affinity for a medicine. It may have been things like watching Star Trek going up and, you know, the roles of the doctors in the TV, but it seemed like something where it was a meaningful direction. And then as I, you know, was an undergrad, I, I had set off in a, a, an early step towards going towards medicine. But one of the things we thought we had to do back then was research. And then I had the, like a catastrophic, uh, identity crisis so I found out you could just do both and so have kind of been on this long journey of you know doing medicine and trying to change medicine ever since well I mean it's a great field and boy the growth of therapeutic and diagnostic opportunities in oncology is mind-blowing so your main clinical interest is soft tissue and bone sarcomas. I mentioned in fact I saw my first Ewing sarcoma when I was in in Anna King's department so while most of our listeners are medical professionals, some are just interested members of the public. So maybe start at the beginning with an overview about sarcomas and, you know, some of these pretty wretched diseases. Wax lyrical, if you will. You know, I think that in a world of rare things, and it may come down to why I like antiques, because they're all one-offs. You know, you get into medicine and you find common things that are common. You get into oncology, you find common things that are common, like breast cancer and colon cancer and, you know, historically lung cancer uh, from smoking. But then you get into what we call the rare tumor world, where maybe 20 people in the United States get a disease a year. And then all of a sudden it became kind of an area of medicine where it needed a lot of intellectual input. It needed a lot of creativity. It needed new ideas. And so I kind of fell into this rare tumor world, which just happens to also involve most of the tumors that are called sarcomas. Right at the end of my fellowship, before I started doing my postdoc, and it, it kind of changed my life because there was, especially back in, you know, 2000 and 2010, there was not that much going on. There were very few drugs and there was a huge unmet need and we've come a long way. So well, I guess one of the areas of progress has been immunotherapy, which has changed the way we treat cancers from my perspective. And an article that you published just last year, I believe, details several trials that evaluated immune checkpoint blockade in soft tissue sarcoma. I explain that topic uh, to us, please. Well, so soft tissue sarcoma is a catch-all term for about a hundred different diseases, which probably have very little to actually do with each other, but have to be studied as a group due to their rarity. And, you know, I've had the privilege of helping to build a very large trials program at Washington University for the rare tumor population. And so as immunotherapy went across all the carcinomas very quickly, it came a bit late uh, to the rare tumor world. But as we got into it, we began finding things that were fascinating. You know, we found a subset of tumors called undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, where a subset of those seemed to respond to either single or dual checkpoint therapies. We then went on with a project out of the Broad and a, a good friend of mine named Corey Painter to figure out that cutaneous angiosarcoma is a disease that comes from sun exposure and it has the same UV signature but different cell of origin than as melanoma. And then into the guidelines because people were responding dramatically, uh, we were we found that checkpoint inhibitors worked in angiosarcoma. And there's only 300 people a year that get that, of which a third are probably cutaneous. When you go on next, we have gone on this amazing journey with a company called Adaptimmune. 
turns out that synovial sarcoma, which about a thousand people probably get a year between like the ages of 15 and 40, expresses a tumor antigen called MAJ4, which is very common among synovial sarcoma. And they built a modified T cell based on HLAO2, which does restrict who uh, can actually get it. But I've had people where you take cells out of their bodies, you modify them, you put them back, and they treat their own tumors, and the tumors go away. And so this is very much back to the Star Trek analogy at the very beginning, where I'm doing things with my patients that I never thought would happen, and especially in the immunotherapy region. It's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I know that there's an appeal for companies to get involved in these so-called orphan diseases because of the intellectual property protection that they get and reimbursement protection. Some of these rare diseases for which amazing treatments have been found, certainly in the metabolic space, um, they're tiny numbers of patients, but game-changing therapy, right? When you have the right rare disease and the right immunotherapy, it's absolutely game-changing. I mean, and it's such a privilege to get to go on this journey. Yeah. So um, I've not had it in the oncology space, but in the rare disease space, some work I was involved in in, in Virginia actually um, has been really eye-opening. Anyway, yeah. So I had to dredge my memory <laughs> a long way back into my memory and sneak a look at Dr. Google to remind myself about alveolar soft part sarcoma or ASPS, a malignancy that, op uh, that can originate I believe in different types of soft tissue, muscles, fat, nerves, and so on, often in the leg for some reason. And it has a genetic determinant and has to date, again, I could be wrong about all of this, not being responsive to chemotherapy. But in your latest publication, you discuss treatment options for advanced ASPS. Educate us about this condition and what does atezolizumab contribute to our armamentarium? By the way, all of those monoclonal antibody drugs, the MABs, I cannot pronounce one of them without getting a, an acute panic attack. So if I slaughtered it, my apologies. Well, the good news is you got it right. And you should try the list of the ones in phase one. They only get harder. Uh, the names these things get I, uh, are, are sometimes very, very challenging. You know, I, I think ironically, when I was a fellow, I did a deep dive on alveolar soft part sarcoma because it looks funny under the microscope and did an entire grand rounds on this very rare disease. And this is around the time that it was known to have two properties. The first property was a, a fusion of the alveolar soft part sarcoma locus, which means we don't even know what it is, to TFE3, which is a transcription factor. But it also has this funny box-like structure in it which turns out to be a transporter that's crystallized. And about 20 people get it a year. And I just thought this was fascinating. And then you jump ahead 10 years, and the NCI under Alice Chen puts together a clinical trial of eltezolizumab for the treatment of alveolar soft part sarcoma. And Andrea Wayne Gillum, who was the phase one director at the time, told me I was opening this trial. And I looked right at her and said, I have never seen one of these patients. This was early in my career. And I said, well, you cannot get mad at me if our accrual is zero. And she goes, you're opening this trial. <laughs> and so I opened this trial. And then a little bit like the Lion King, if you open it, they will come. <laughs> and, you know, it was amazing. And so I think over the course of the trial, we put on 
maybe around 10 patients over the course of about four years. And, you know, atezolizumab, unlike a lot of the other clonal antibodies, because it goes after the ligand, has a lot less side effects. And there's a lot less autoimmune diseases that come out of this in terms of like an AE profile compared to like epilimumab. And all of a sudden these tumors were shrinking. These tumors were going very small and we had stability going on years. And, you know, this is a chemo-insensitive disease for which, you know, there are a number of tyrosine kinase inhibitors we use to treat them. We don't actually know what the target is, but it's become one of the pet diseases of the NCI. And so if you end up having alveolar soft part sarcoma, you know, there's been a lot of work done there. And so between any number of TKIs that have gone on in trial over time, and then out of the middle of all this, Braylon Wilkie does a, a kind of a pan-clinical trial of like oxitinib with Pembro, where there was a signal in ASPS. And what the NCI did through CTEP, which was actually turn their clinical trial into a registration trial that led to the FDA approval for altezolizumab for ASPS. And uh, just recently, a New England Journal publication where Alice, I couldn't be prouder for her. I mean, it, it, she really made a difference in an area I never thought we'd see an approval in just because of numbers. And so it's a fascinating disease. And, you know, I think patients are going to live even longer. And so, I, you know, I've had some people now in my clinic with ASPS because of all the clinical trials going on 10 years. It, 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 it's amazing to, uh, to hear of this progress and, and the, the encouragement it can give to, to patients, their loved ones, and caregivers alike. So you mentioned a genetic uh, mutation. How many malignant diseases have defined mutations? And maybe talk to us about how we can use knowledge of, um, of an individual person's genome and the proteins they express that might help us define which treatments may or may not work. I know that AI, the buzzword of the day, is being used to expand this knowledge. And the issue is that, you know, many of the chemotherapeutic drugs are unpleasant, which I guess one would tolerate if you're going to get a cure, but not so, toler you know, not so acceptable if there's, you know, if it's not going to work, right? Oh, you just asked a question about 175 separate diseases, which makes this a, a complicated question. You've got five minutes to nail it. <laughs> Go. No, uh, that's actually kind of a challenge. But, you know, I think we look at, and I kind of conceptually in my head, divide up sarcoma into bone tumors versus soft tissue tumors. And then I draw another line of ones driven by translocations and ones that are complex cytogenetics. And it's interesting that within the translocations, we also find things like NTREC fusions. We find things like chromatin remodeling fusions. Uh, we find things that are pathognomonic. And what's interesting is if you get into something as simple as Ewing sarcoma, which I give an entire hour long lecture on, you know, everybody knows about if you're a physician from like the step one of the board, the EWS fly fusion of Ewing sarcoma, it turns out there's about 20 other binding partners where you can actually get Ewing sarcoma. And that is starting to have a targeted therapy developed within the LSD1 world. You know, there are 
KDR mutations, which is a fancy renaming of VEGFR2 uh, that respond to TKIs within angiosarcoma. I think that every sarcoma must be sequenced. I think that there are a lot of things that I, I know what I'm going to see if you tell me, you know, I have a D-differentiated liposarcoma. I know it has an amplification of MDM2 and CDK4, and we're targeting these in the clinical trial to try to get more approvals. You know, we're moving towards more degraders. We're, we're moving towards new monoclonal antibodies going after Axel. And so there's a lot of stuff in the cell surface that we have yet to tap, which is in itself targetable. And what's interesting about the entire world is to be a good sarcoma doctor, you have to have just a diversity of knowledge where you can cross every class of drugs from NK cells to T cells to, you know, metabolic agents that are now in phase three to DNA repair to tyrosine kinases. And you actually have to be able to understand what you're doing and keep all that knowledge current and only see that one patient that has those. And so this is a wonderfully challenging field with a lot of intellectual stimulation and a lot of really neat patients. So um, thank you very much for, the, for that summary. 175 diseases summarized in less than five minutes. Very, very impressive. So uh, arginine, that uh, amino acid found in a good juicy steak, for instance, is a topic of your laboratory. My understanding is that uh, arginine succinate synthase one is an enzyme involved in metabolism about, you know, concerning this amino acid. I know that you've published on this and the association with some nasty sarcomas. Can you please, assuming that I'm an idiot, which is a pretty safe assumption, actually, talk us through the work and its possible therapeutic implications? So once upon a time, I was given a data set from a pathologist named Brian Rubin which launched my entire career. And he had looked at 700 samples across about 45 different histologies of sarcoma and found that the urea cycle, which is how we make nitric oxide, how we clear ammonia, how we make arginine, and how we make a lot of biomass is silenced in sarcoma. And the reason that it became clear over time that it got silenced is it freed up a different amino acid called aspartate so that we could make more nucleotides, so you can make more DNA, so you can make more cancer. And the reason you could silence this gene is you could just pick up arginine from the bloodstream. And so a long time ago, we started doing really simple experiments with a drug that can be given as a shot. And that drug is called arginine DMNase. And so if you've got a biomarker, which is the loss of ASS1, you would think that if you starve extracellular arginine from these cells, they would enter a starvation state and then hopefully die. Well, we learned that they could actually just adapt. And because they could adapt uh, metabolically, we got them to make these strong decisions. And so, you know, just like with Parliament, once they make a decision, you're kind of stuck with it. Well, if you make a metabolic decision within a sarcoma cell, you actually make some choices that you can't necessarily undo. You know, and then we worked on this, did some really diverse metabolic experiments. And then along came a postdoc named Bethany Prudner, who... You know, we wanted to do a clinical trial with sarcoma, and I told her very early on to copy a paper done in pancreatic cancer and sarcoma 
And then she walked into my office one day and showed me something that didn't make sense at the time, which was she was actually able to drive up one of the transporters that basically brought in nucleotides so that the, you know, in the starvation state, the thing basically turns into Pac-Man and starts looking for food. And one of the things it does is it goes and looks for nucleotides that are shed from the microenvironment so that it can basically continue to grow. Well, the way we did that was people getting shots of arginine deaminase were given a, a kind of a classic chemotherapy called docetaxel. And that sent up something called HENT1, which is, turns out to also be the transporter for gemcitabine, which is actually what we call a chain terminator, where it gets incorporated into cells. And basically, it stops the DNA from extending, so the cells die. And this was just a fascinating finding. And this, very, this was like one of the fastest papers in my life, from start to finish, including the animal experiment. It was about four months, and it was like a nine-arm animal experiment. We went straight into people with this, and we learned very quickly in this clinical trial that if you can get gemcitabine into cells, you need a lot less of it. So we actually have managed to get through a phase two clinical trial where we actually had the dose de-escalate, which was kind of neat. We could give less drug and get effect. We had six people whose diseases disappeared out of 75, and a whole bunch of other responses. And so there was a signal here that's led to a phase three clinical trial. That's hopefully what will lead to an FDA approval of arginine deaminase in sarcoma. We haven't stopped. My grad student just came out with a paper showing the addition of chloroquine blocked the ability of the microenvironment to send little packets of proteins through what we call extracellular vesicles to tumors, and it deepened our response rate in mice. And so we're launching a trial right behind it just so that we can do a four-drug trial right behind the registration trial to try to really increase our response rate for what, when given correctly, uh, will hopefully be a shot you take at home with a little bit of chemotherapy, but not the doses we were using. And so it's hopefully a transformative way of thinking, which is using a tumor's own metabolism against itself. Yeah, I love these new ways of thinking. I'm, I was, while you were talking, I was trying to remember the name of a chap. I remember his name, but he was doing work on chaperone molecules to get stuff into cells in small, small quantities, again, to deal with metabolic, um, uh, you know, inborn errors of metabolism. But it, it, these, these are paradigm shifts in thinking. It's just not another small molecule, right? Which is what pharmaceuticals have been for a long time. So nowadays, lots of words end in omics, far more than when I was at med school. Talk to us about metabolomics and their relevance to oncology. So metabolomics is another omics. It's one of the more complicated ones. And so you have to have an understanding that sometimes up is down and down is up, <laughs> which is opposite. So I, I think when you and I were probably in early studies, you know, we were studying like phosphorylation cascades and if you put a phosphate on something, you know, it was active. Well, you know, sometimes we go and measure metabolites and they're gone, which means they're either not made or they're being used at a hyperspeed or there's something else going on. And so you have to look at metabolomics against a stress, believe it or not, before you can even begin to interpret them. 
and really understand where all the rate limiting metabolites are. But it turns out we know, you know, we normally measure about 200 or so by standard mass spec, and there's a lot more metabolites that are going on than we ever measure. And so this is an ever-expanding field of metabolism when you look at metabolites. But metabolism, when married to uh, proteomics, becomes even more powerful because now you have which enzymes are there, which enzymes are on, and where your metabolite flux seems to be. And it's becoming this really interesting world where you know, the people who study RNA are years ahead of us. They, you know, they've now got all this single cell uh, RNA-seq where they can kind of tell you what goes on in this cell versus that cell at the RNA level. But when you get into metabolic flux across the microenvironment, this is a, this is a rapidly evolving field where I think we're going to find a lot of opportunities uh, for drug developing because my overarching goal in, in my career is actually to get a pure metabolic therapy going which is driven off a biomarker where only the additional drugs that work work when the first drug is active, which is only in the biomarker. So if you can find a metabolic deficiency, like the loss of ME1 and synovial sarcoma, and you begin drugging against that loss, and then you do the adaptive metabolism strategy of figuring out if I give this drug, how does the cell figure out its way around that and then block that? we really find that all the other drugs like glutaminase inhibitors and other things like that just don't seem to have a lot of toxicity by themselves. And so we're hoping we can build a pretty non-toxic therapy because we're building off the properties of the tumor. And so it, it is an interesting kind of world. Uh, but it's hard to do these clinical trials because as monoagents, most of them fail. But these are key drugs that really should be developed in combination, which makes it challenging with our current drug paradigm for like drug development. So again, this is like um, a, a paradigm shift, uh, a new way of thinking about stuff. So I believe it was 2021, you were part of a team who evaluated and published an article discussing anthracycline-associated cardiotoxicity in patients with soft tissue sarcomas treated with doxorubicin. Can you tell us about the results of uh, that trial? When I was young, you know, we always do what we're taught right out of fellowship because that's just the way things are done. But, you know, the standard of care for the treatment of doxorubicin when I came out of fellowship was to add a cardioprotectin after cycle five. You know, there was always this fear that if you gave a cardioprotectin too early, you would protect the tumors from doxorubicin. And then Lee Hellman was here giving a, a lecture, and at the time he was the head of the pediatric NCI, just a wonderful man, and said, well, the pediatricians have been giving this up front forever. And we thought, well, that's interesting. And it sort of launched this prospective trial looking at the, just using a cardioprotected up front, and then actually not stopping using doxorubicin. Because, you know, back then I had three drugs and then we would circle back to our most active drug that was doxorubicin, kind of under a, a conversation that would go, well, I can either put you on hospice or push, push your doxorubicin dose and risk heart failure. And we all learned how to use doxorubicin safely. And we did this on a prospective clinical trial, which showed that we can actually get out to like 10 times what you're supposed to give without causing heart failure if you started from cycle one with a cardioprotective which really, especially in early publications, started to look like you could 
push survival and a lot of people you know it's a chemotherapy it's an old chemotherapy but a lot of people really tolerate single agent doxorubicin well you know we had one woman on the trial who took it sort of like candy who was on it for five years and you know this would have been heresy early on but on a clinical trial we were about to come out with the final publication you can really give this safely you can push what was thought to be dosing limits and you can do it all on a single day treatment you know the alternative was this 72 hour infusion which I don't see as a, a quality of life because if I have to send you home on a pump for three days, it, it, it's you're still on a pump for three days. And so we, we wanted to see what we could do with this. And it seemed to be a good question to ask, which is you always have to, I think, challenge what you're taught. But you should always do it not in like, like a cowboy fashion, but you should always do it on a validated clinical trial. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talking about uh, trials and treatments, what, what can you give us... Uh... Uh, hopefully this this question isn't as trying as the one where I asked you to summarize all cancers uh, and, ge and genomics, but what treatments available for other types of soft tissue tumors such as synovial sarcoma and how effective are they? So, you know, as I mentioned before, for like synovial sarcoma, there's a, a list of things coming that I think are exciting. One is the MJ4 T cell, which we talked about previously, but I think that's almost up for FDA approval. It's just astounding when it works. It's a single treatment. And then people treat themselves, and sometimes they treat themselves for years. You know, there's this really fascinating protein degrader where, you know, if you get tried to try to keep this simple, uh, the fusion and synovial sarcoma alters a complex by kicking something out that controls what genes are made. And somebody made a protein degrader that pulls a different protein out that, com that basically crushes the complex so it doesn't work. And so there's a company called C4, which made this BRD9 degrader that I, I think is just fascinating conceptually because it's the most targeted drug you can get, which has the, all these proteasomal protein degraders that goes after a biology that's not that important in somebody who's not growing. You know, there is a new drug that, you know, for full disclosure, I'm part of a patent looking at uh, AXCT3102, which is a drug that works by inducing baroptosis. It's a targeted arrastin, which delivers it to a tumor cell. We showed in clinical cancer research that because synovial sarcoma lacks malic enzyme 1, it can't really make enough NAP NADPH in the cytoplasm to control its glutathione levels. It's probably why iphosphamide works so well in synovial sarcoma. And this drug looks promising because you have a biomarker, you've got a target. You know, it was actually developed for pancreatic cancer by Bill Hawkins, and then it kind of became a your chocolate and my peanut butter story because I had the cancer and he had the drug. And we've really kind of worked together a long way to try to get this through a company called Acuronics to people, which I think we're probably still a year off. But, you know, you have these great ideas, people making drugs around you, you have these marriages. You know, synovial sarcoma has a lot of targets. You know, there is another drug called catequintinib, which, like pazopinib, is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has activity. There's a lot of ways to push survival in synovial sarcoma, and if we get a better understanding of who and responds to the T-cell and who doesn't and what we can add to it to make it work better, I, I am hoping we can begin to push survival within that very defined and very interesting disease that I have a privilege of seeing a lot. Okay. So um, again, thanks for that great summary. And again, 
a lot to be hopeful for because I know many of these diseases previously were pretty much a death sentence. So great stuff. So to go from the, the factual to the fanciful, I always like to finish with this question or a version of it. If you found a dusty old lamp at one of your online antique auctions, took it home, gave it a bit of a scrub, and out popped a genie who could grant you three wishes in your area of healthcare, what would they be? What a great question. I think first, I would ask that there be a lot more sarcoma doctors because there's this huge unmet need around the world. There aren't that many of us. Second, I would love a shot where we could do neoantigens against people's tumors where you could just modify cells and they would treat yourself, which is kind of this fantasy COVID vaccine to T-cell marriage therapy that you can probably get to in another 15 years. And third, I could just make this easy and ask that sarcoma just never existed. Because <laughs> I would be happy to go on and do something else with my life. Because, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I have a, but I'm quite married to what I'm doing now. Well, um, I, for one, I'm very grateful that you are doing what you're doing. And um, whilst there are plenty more restaurants around the world uh, to visit and wines to sample and online auctions to explore, I think anyone who's living with one of these wretched diseases is probably very pleased that, uh, that you are working it. I'm afraid, folks, that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank Professor Brian Van Tyne for taking the time to tell us about the research that he's up to and, frankly, all he's doing for patients. So it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and I'm hoping that we can break bread, or should I say baguette, uh, soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Also, and by the way, I should tell you this because I think you'll appreciate it. I saw this online I think they're called memes. I, I get terribly confused. It's a picture that of, uh, of an alien spaceship landing in Bordeaux and <laughs> a, a ray gun to the French and saying, hand over all your gitan, all your claret, and uh, all your um, camembert, or we'll incinerate the country. The French chose incineration. So... <laughs> a classy country and I love their I love their culture as well. So folks please join us again next week for yet another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Please don't forget to like us on social media so that you never miss an episode. Sign up and check out our archives because there's loads of great episodes there. Until then I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you so much for listening and until next time please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.